Almighty God, we praise you this day for your word, and we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that your word stands true. We ask now, Father, as we come to these, uh, frankly, difficult verses, please help me, Father, as your minister appointed to this church, to explain your word in a manner which is plain, understandable, and pleasing to you, and beneficial to my brothers and sisters in the faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I think all of us would agree that it's rather easy to take the easy path. It always is. Indeed, it's a fundamental law of physics that that's the way nature works. When objects move through a system, they do take the path of least resistance. They take the easy path that makes perfect sense, generally speaking. If you were to watch a time-lapse movie sequence of pedestrians bustling down a busy city street, what would you see? You'd see people dodging out of the way. You might see a couple, arm in arm, desperately in love, gazing into each other's eyes. And then when a a pack of schoolboys comes sprinting down the sidewalk, you see them disengage from one another and allow the boys to go in between them. It's easier. It's the path of least resistance. And in that case, it's much smarter. But then, as the couple continues to walk down, you might see a grown man approaching them, and he's a little bit more on the courteous side. He's a little bit more socially aware than that pack of grammar school boys, and he moves off to the right to allow them to pass. That's what you would see. Have you ever been walking down a city with very high buildings and you realize that you can't escape the wind? The wind doesn't go through the buildings. It goes into the street, the alleyway, literally. And you get blasted by it. Some cities are worse than others. Chicago's notorious for this. New York is, is horrific for this. If you're in midtown Manhattan, the skyscrapers, you cannot escape it. Pittsburgh in certain areas... The path of least resistance, the easy way, is natural and in some cases proper. If you need an A on a test, and you know you need an A on a test, and you know that you need to study for an hour, and an hour will get the job done, then to study for four is counterproductive. I did that once. I, over, I actually overstudied. My children are probably uh, wondering at this. How did Dad, he's admitting that he overstudied. That's an impossibility. I did. I overstudied, and I panicked on the test the next day. I knew the stuff, but I stayed up late, and I kept remedying to my brain, and lo and behold, I blew an essay, which I, I might blow a multiple choice, but I don't usually blow essays. In the Christian life, however, the easy way is not an option. The path of least resistance is just ruled out of court. But it's easy to take the easy way, and that's why we do it. And when I was reading these verses from Matthew, you probably thought, wow, I've heard these before. I wonder what he's going to do with these. Well, I've been wondering for two weeks what I'm going to do with these. But even though the path of least resistance is is fundamentally easier, and it's a fundamental law of physics, It is not the way of the Christian walk. 
If anything, Christianity is exceedingly difficult. That's not a way to fill the pews. But I'd be a liar if I told you anything different. To walk the Christian path is the most difficult, most challenging, most scary thing that a human being could ever attempt to do. It's a little easier for us here in the States. But it wasn't easy for our Lord. It wasn't easy for the disciples. It's not easy for our missionary. It's not easy for Christians in Saudi Arabia or China or Nepal. Places where people actively persecute Christians. It's not easy for them. They understand that. We do, at the moment, have it relatively easy here. You can be a Christian in America, and nobody's really going to bother you. They might laugh at you at work, make fun of you at school, but that's about all that's going to happen. Nobody's going to fire you. Nobody's going to take your house. Nobody's going to kill you. Nobody's going to take your family away from you and leave you alone. It's just not going to happen at the moment. But at the time that our Lord spoke these words, 2,000 some odd years ago, they were utterly astonishing. And you know what? If a brief paragraph like this can still make people stutter step 2,000 years later, you know you've really hit onto something that really is powerful and true. If something lasts for a long time, that means it's a good thing, generally speaking. Fads and fashions come and go, but these words have still been making Christians cringe for 2,000 years. They have been making Christians wallow in their self-realization for 2,000 years. That means that these words have staying power. And I challenge you to find anything in the Bible that is more difficult to implement in your life than these words. There are very few things. I've looked far and wide, and I've come to the conclusion that this is where the rubber truly meets the road. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. If you master this, everything else, quite frankly, will look like a piece of cake. But we Christians are not exempt from taking the easy way out. It just frankly, reflects poorly on the Lord. When we take the easy path, when we take the path of least resistance, we are really violating the third commandment. Take not the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord shall not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. I've told you this many times. Taking the Lord's name in vain does not mean just using his name as a cuss word. The way we carry ourselves in public the way we reflect our Lord in the public sphere, the way we reflect the Lord by our words, our actions, the things that people can actually see, that's where the rubber meets the road. And when we take the easy path out, when we do not uphold our Christian profession, our confession, in the public sphere, we take his name in vain and we bring shame upon his name. And his name is greatly to be praised, isn't it? That's what the psalmist says. Great are you, Lord, and greatly is your name to be praised. There's a reason why it is one of the commandments. It is altogether too easy to take the easy road in Christian life. But I'm going to assume that you don't want to do that. I'm going to assume that you want to live a rich life, a full life, 
a life devoted to the Lord, a life that can actually make a difference, not only in your life, not only in your family's life, but the life of the world. Because in case you haven't noticed it, the world is literally coming apart at the moment. It's frying itself. It's coming apart at the seams. It's go- it's- I'm not going to sound apocalyptic here because you know I have an optimistic eschatology. But at the moment, it's- parts of it are ready to go up in flames. What's interesting about all these political developments is that what's happening in the Western world is generally speaking par for the course everywhere else. And we're just realizing, oh boy, things are bad. When in reality, it's bad for the vast majority of people on this planet all day, every single day. But if you really want to make a difference in that world, even in the kind and soft world that God has allowed us to be born into, and we shouldn't begrudge that, then this is the way to do it. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16? If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and become my disciple and follow after me. Question of the day is this. Are you ready, willing, and able to take up your cross for the Lord who took up his cross for you? He carried his cross. Are you willing to do the same for him? It really is just that simple. There are many areas of the Christian life or temptation to take the easy path will confront us. And let us be honest, each of us has different challenges. What one person might consider a temptation and another person wouldn't bother them one bit. One person is tempted by this, another person is tempted by that. But we're all tempted by something. But I dare say that this, this issue presented to us in the Gospel today is a universal. The desire to justify ourselves the desire to seek vengeance, the desire to seek personal revenge, that's fairly universal. It's a very rare person who doesn't want to get even with people who hurt them. It's an extremely rare individual. And generally speaking, my experience has been is that when someone seems like they're that, it's for two reasons. Well, possibly three. One, the Holy Spirit has truly worked a miracle of sanctification in their life. Two, they're just born with an easygoing disposition. And this doesn't tempt them. Or three, they're just scared of the repercussions. There are a lot of people out there who would love to avenge themselves on a number of people, but they're just afraid of what people will say to them if they let out all their nastiness. That spirit of vindictiveness. You did this to me, well, I'll get you. I won't just get even. I'll do you five times as badly as you have done me. We've all met people like that, and I see some of you squirming. Some of us are like that. I'll be frank with you, for many, many years, I was like that. It's an easy thing to do, but here's the catch. It's easy to take vengeance. Anybody can do it. Anybody can be vengeful. But it's hard, and we have to resist the temptation to take personal revenge. Now, let us take a look at the text itself and just gaze into its path. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, 
These verses are famous. This passage is famous. Did you ever think, and maybe you didn't know until today, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's a conflation of three different Old Testament verses. It's case law. Did you realize that these, what's contained in these verses is common? Turn the other cheek. How many times have you heard that? Go the extra mile. Go the second mile. They've become common usage, common parlance. And unfortunately, because they're so common, they've lost their power. When we hear them in this setting, not just when someone's giving us advice, they fall on inattentive ears. But there's, there's tremendous power in these verses. They're easy words to say, but they are hard words to practice. Now, let's be very frank. This passage sits like a sour lemon on most of our tongues. There are many of us who would just as soon drink battery acid than actually listen to these words, or even fewer of us would like to put them into practice. Many of you will hear this sermon, agree with the sermon, and be unwilling or unable to actually put it into practice. It's a fact. But vengeance is not the Christian way. Revenge is not the Christian way. Christ clearly forbids it. But let us be honest, there are many persons on church rolls who have bitter, vindictive, angry, nasty, cantankerous, yet even type of attitudes. We all might act like that at some times, but if that is the dominating characteristic of our personalities, then we have to truly question our Christian profession. Because Christ was not like that. And if we have the Spirit of Christ residing in us, and we believe that He has ascended on high and is interceding for us, then this type of attitude has got to be an anomaly. Maybe you're like this. The question is, do you see it receding as the years go by? Do you see yourself, by God's grace, becoming less vindictive, less vengeful, less nasty? Or do you see it getting worse or the same? These are serious issues before us. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, Christ is quoting Old Testament case law. And in his day, the Jewish people, surprise, surprise, were quite in favor of personal retaliation. What's interesting about this law is that in our day and throughout history, they have been used to justify capital punishment. And if used properly, you can adduce these verses as proof to back up that position. What's ironic is that a law, this eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is called the lex talionis, the law of the talon. What it was originally geared for is for justice. And what it has turned into now, and this is what sinners do, they take God's law, which is meant to be good, and they degrade it, and it's become an excuse for vengeance. You see, when the Lord said in the Mosaic Covenant, an eye for an eye, what that meant was this. If you lose an eye, you can't take the fellow's head. The punishment has to fit the crime. That's the essence of this lex talionis. For instance, in Islamic law. Islamic law is a little bit misunderstood. But under certain circumstances, 
and a certain level of theft, a particular thief might, they don't have to, but they might lose a limb. That's right there in the Quran. First they amputate one hand, then another, and then, quite frankly, for third offense, a leg. But it has to be at a certain level. A child steals a toy. Well, they have to be at a certain age anyway. But that's unjust. No manner of financial crime is worthy of a physical punishment. It's not. God's law has financial crimes be met by a financial penalty. And in Jesus' age, what was occurring with the Pharisees was they were having this big debate whether or not the physical penalties still were on the books. And they were trying to come up with ways that, okay, well, you got into a fight and you knocked the guy's teeth out, but you're my son-in-law, so I don't want you to get your teeth knocked out. Is there any way that you can pay a fine? They were trying to switch things around. But Jesus doesn't just correct them here. That's what he's been doing the whole time. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is that someone who is going to be called a Christian had better have a higher degree of practical, holy, separate, righteous living than someone who wanted to be called a Pharisee, someone who just wanted to go through the motions, someone who was just concerned with formalities. The heart's desire to go over and above in the area of justice. That's what this law is intended to fix. What is Christ saying? Hmm. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Not to resist an evil person. Now in this context, who is an evil person? There's three categories. Someone who slaps you on your right cheek. Someone who wants to sue you and take your tunic. And someone who compels you to go a mile. Not the person who needs a loan. There's three, there's three evil persons in this context. Now as we move on to verse 39, what does it say? I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Well, well, well. How easy do you think that is? How easy is it for you? Bear in mind that in this passage, Jesus is not dealing with life-threatening things. This is a backhand. And a backhand slap from one man to another, generally speaking, is viewed as an insult. The person is viewed as not even worthy of a solid punch. Just slap you. Just give you a backhand. You're not even worth my time. Just get out of my way. It's an insult. So what Jesus is talking about is a personal insult here not a grievous bodily harm. This law has got nothing to do with someone. If somebody comes up to you with a submachine gun and wants to shoot you, this law is not telling you, oh, just open up your arms and let him shoot you. That's not what this law is talking about. Jesus is not talking about life-threatening situations. And he's certainly not talking about if somebody breaks into your home and wants to harm your, your family, that you don't defend them. That's not what this is. This is talking about a personal insult. You've been slapped. And in our day, mm, slaps don't happen too often. You might be called a name. You might be ridiculed. You'll be insulted. Have you ever been insulted before? All of us have. 
And what's your initial reaction? Insult back. Payback. Get evenness. Let me ask you this. If someone insults you, do you, do you have a burning desire to ruin their reputation? Do you want to go one better than just the insult? They called you a name and now you're going to wreck their reputation? Have you ever encountered somebody like that? Where you realize that you offended them and, wow, okay, you just let loose the, 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 the dogs of war just by that little, little name you called them. They all of a sudden just, just break out the heavy artillery. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And this is hard. Jesus isn't saying, don't slap them back. Jesus isn't saying for you to say, why did you do that? Jesus is not telling you to assert your legal rights and take them to court. Jesus is telling you, literally, turn your face, let them hit you again. Now, you can see why these words have been shocking people for 2,000 years. Because nobody wants to do this. It's unnatural. Because of the fall, um, when an animal gets attacked, it attacks back. Even a chipmunk will try and attack a cat. It's going to be a lost battle, but the chipmunk will do a gamey effort. But it will lose eventually. Terrifying day for the chippy. And a fun day for the cat. But it wasn't always that way. The fall has brought about violence and terror into God's good world. Are you able to do this? Are you? Do you are you willing to even try? Now, keeps going, and it just gets worse. But remember, Jesus wants you to be holier than the Pharisees. And to seek vengeance is easy, but you have to resist the desire to get even. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, in verse 40, let him have your cloak also. Now this strikes us as a little archaic, a little odd. When's the last time somebody sued you for your coat? The context of this is Jewish, Jewish loans. It's collateral. If you loan somebody X amount of money or a tool or something, you could take their garment, their outer garment or their inner garment as collateral. But the way the law worked is that you had to give the cloak back at night. Because even though they lived in the desert, it gets cold in the desert. In other words, the collateral that the rich, richer person takes from the poorer person cannot harm the weaker party in the contract physically. You see, the law was always there to protect the, rich, the poor from the rich to protect the weak from the strong. That's God's equitable way to protect the just from the unjust. But what would happen if the person who gave the loan was unjust and demanded the cloak at night? What would happen if the person who, took, who gave the loan was unjust and said the loan hasn't been repaid? I want your cloak and tunic. Jesus isn't saying... Take him to court. Jesus isn't saying, assert your legal rights. Jesus is saying, give him the tunic as well. Amazing, isn't it? Dumbfounding. Who on earth would do that? 
Who on earth would do that? And he keeps on going. The hits just keep coming. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This never happens in our world. This is talking about a, a neat little Roman law that they had. When the Romans conquered someplace, they really conquered it. And if a Roman citizen came up to a non-Roman citizen and said, listen, I need help. The law read that they had to help them carry a pack or something for a mile. That was the law. Now, you can only imagine how unpopular this was. Imagine, it's 50 years from now, and the United States of America is an Islamic republic. It might happen. We might not be here, but it might happen. And imagine the law reads like this. Any Christian, any Muslim can come up and make a Christian help them wash their car, do their laundry yard work. How popular of a law would that be? That's the only frame of reference I can give you. Or, for those of you my age or younger, if the Soviet Union had actually won and taken us over, if the Russians, well, they weren't all Russians, but if the Ruskies had said, you know what, uh, we won, and if we want you to do this and this and that, this type of manual labor, you just have to do it. Jesus is saying, dumbfound them, go the extra mile. This is literally what he means. Can you imagine being a Pharisee listening to this? People have to obey this law. You can't fight Rome. You just can't. It just beat everybody until the Germans came down from the Rhine. But at this point, they were just beating everybody. And the Pharisees were telling the people, just put up with it and grind it out. Jesus was saying, no. Put a smile on your face and just roll with it. And then the final example, of course, is if someone, if you loan something to someone, don't expect anything in return. If they don't pay you back or cannot pay you back, don't sue them. And this is talking about in the context of the covenantal community. This is not talking about business arrangements where someone says, you know what, I'll do this labor for you and you will pay me this. And then the person doesn't do it. That's, that's not what this situation is talking about. This is talking about a poorer Christian who comes to you and asks for a personal loan to help pay their bills. And that's the context for today. And the question is, what would you do? Would you draft a fancy contract ensuring repayment from that poorer brother? A very wise person once said, if you show God your checkbook, God will show you your heart. Do you have a spirit of generosity towards your fellow believers? Don't even get me going about missions giving. Okay? There are brothers and sisters out there who are very, very, very poor. Who are starving. And we are not. And the average giving for per capita for Christian in our country is a little over $2,000. Hmm. Seems generous. But when you realize that some people are living on two or $400 a year or a month, hmm, it's just not evening out. God has given us great blessings. We are to share them with those who are less fortunate, particularly those who are Christians. If we're not willing to help other Christians physically, then what does that say about our Christian faith? You're going to spend eternity with these people. And if we're not willing to help them, what does that say about the work of Christ in our heart? 
I have to ask, hmm, my heart's a little hard on this one. These are brutally difficult. Jesus gives us a little bit more uh, emphasis in Luke 6. If you lend to those whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. The key phrase is nothing in return. These are, I'm telling you, the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. I see the dumbfound look on your face. Does he really, does Jesus really mean that? Yes, he actually does. Jesus isn't in the habit of saying something and meaning another. This is a very, very simple teaching to understand. It's an incredibly difficult teaching to implement and apply in our personal lives. We really have two choices. Trust that Jesus is telling us the truth. Trust that he is giving us the proper way to live and therefore obey him or distrust him and disobey him. Those are the only choices on the table this morning. This is not a call for pacifism. These verses have been taken out of their context and said, well, we should not have an army. We should just let people invade our homes. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about personal vengeance, personal affronts that are not life-threatening. I have to be clear. If someone breaks into your house tonight, um, protect yourself. If you have little children, you have to protect them. And yes, I'm a little bit old school, and so is God. If you're a man, you better, you better be the first one that dies in the house. Right? You better be the first one that goes. That's God's way. This is talking about personal insults. You can defend other people. Okay? But this is talking about when someone insults you. This is talking about crimes of inconvenience. No Jew ever died by carrying a backpack for a Roman soldier for a mile. That's not what this is talking about. And ultimately, who do these verses point to? They point to our ascended Lord. He did this. He lived this. He's the only one who ever really did. He was beaten. He was betrayed. He was tortured tried unjustly, and killed for you. He obeyed his own law. The path of least resistance is easy. The way of the cross is difficult. God is calling you and me today to take the difficult road because narrow is the gate that leads to heaven. Wide is the path that leads to perdition. It really is just that simple. Would you pray with me? Lord, we beg for the grace we need to begin to implement these hard truths into the lives that you have given us. Amen.